Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Michelle and Paul Tesori, who we met through a mutual friend, actor from The Office, Andy Buckley. It's fitting that we release this episode on PGA Championship Weekend, since Paul has been a PGA Tour caddy for nearly 20 years. Paul has worked with Vijay Singh, Jerry Kelly, Sean O'Hare, and is now the caddy for Webb Simpson. Michelle and Paul created the Tesori Family Foundation. This conversation was a fast friendship that began with their description of Down syndrome on their website as a naturally occurring chromosomal arrangement. And well, they had me there. This was a conversation, an exploration, a discussion about taking it step by step together to make a change. So welcome. Michelle and Paul. Hi, Michelle. Hi, friends. Hi, Paul. Hi. How are you? Hi, guys. Man, I'm so proud of you guys and everything y'all done just to bring light to our awesome little kiddos. Thank you. Well, we're um, we're really excited to even to see and talk to you because um, we've just you know read and, and heard so much great things about you and the foundation. I mean, not only through Andy, but oh. we're 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 doing it together, right? We're just trying to advocate. Well, Andy's a pretty good because he's such a nice human, and he was speaking so highly of you guys. It's like oh. you know. That's amazing. Well, I want to talk to you guys about your foundation because I was I was reading about it and you do a lot of work in so many different areas. There was a few things on your website that I loved because you do focus on helping one child at a time. But when you're talking about Down syndrome, I want to talk about your buddy baskets because those are incredible. But I told Stephen, your wording that your son was born with an extra chromosome trisomy, a naturally occurring. Yes. And I, I'm always picking up different bits of sentences. And that needs to be a part of the conversation. That needs to be a part of the diagnosis because I feel like I feel like that's one of the things that really starts people off on this foot that's so fearful is the way the diagnosis is delivered. And if it was just delivered in a naturally occurring, mm -hmm. you know, it it's so freeing. It is really freeing. And anytime you receive the diagnosis, whether it's prenatally or it's at birth, like Isaiah's diagnosis was an at birth diagnosis with much surprise because I was slightly older when we got pregnant. So we had a lot of testing that was required or highly suggested and came across as required, but turns out wasn't required. They just said, here you go, you have to do this stuff. And the only thing that we declined intentionally was the amnio, but um, everything else we had tested in the 0.001% category of having what they consider a genetic abnormality. So when Isaiah was born, it was, it was super surprising <laughs> to us. Um, I remember the doctor saying, as soon as he was born, kind of panic and people running around, he was not crying, but Apgar was nine. He was very, very healthy, but they, there was some assumption that he had had a seizure of some sort. And the first question was <laughs> so bizarre, right? I mean, I think that as a medical team, the things that the medical profession can be working on and our pediatrician who since has retired, but would be a significant part of that here in Florida is working on ways to deliver a diagnosis differently than has traditionally been given. And the sentence that was uttered to us and to me specifically within a minute of his birth was, are you aware your son is showing markers for Down syndrome? And we were like, what are you talking about? But for us, the gift of that diagnosis, the way that it came was that it came with other significant, severe concerns. They, they were so concerned. They wanted to send in a chaplain. They did not think Isaiah was going to survive. He got whisked off to a neighboring hospital. Um, and we continued to say, every time they continued to bring up Down syndrome, we just kept saying, is that what's killing him? Like, is that the thing? And they kept saying no. And we kept saying that we don't care. Like, talk to us about the important stuff. And then the blessing of our pediatrician 
who we had only met once leading into Isaiah's birth was that she had told us in that one appointment, if you need anything at birth or whatever, you call my cell phone. It was a Saturday night. We called her cell phone. She may or may not have exercised and extended HIPAA violations to join us at the hospital, which we're completely comfortable with. And she came in immediately. And the first thing she said was, you are perfectly equipped to raise this little boy with that diagnosis. And she said it on the phone to us. She, she was pretty in charge of the doctors that had come into the room. And she's like, nobody speaks. Nobody speaks to you. Don't let anybody talk to you until we get there. There is no reason to panic about this diagnosis. I'm on my way. She was at dinner and in she came and she sat with the two of us and she said, this is not what we need to worry about. We need to worry about, they think he has an infection in his brain. Those are the things, but let's take this second by second. The diagnosis delivery for us was on a scale of really bad to really, really great was pretty good. And it's because we were gifted with other challenges for Isaiah. So we weren't focused on what I think traditionally would have been the focus, but that is not the case for most families. So to your point about buddy baskets, after Isaiah was born, because we were unique, I think, in that we did celebrate Isaiah being born and we were so thankful he was gonna live and we were so thankful that all the tests that had come back really scary were unable to be duplicated at another hospital. And they were like, we don't know why he's here. <laughs> he's fine. Like he's gonna pass some car seat tests just like every other kid. And then, and, and he came home. Um, as he was getting a little bit older, a couple months, six months, a year, Paul and I found that we were asking other parents, parents like you who had older children that had a Down syndrome diagnosis, we were asking the same two questions. If you could go back and change anything with your child in parenting and their experiences, what would you change? And if you could go back, what's the one thing you would do every single time, a hundred times out of a hundred? And what was interesting is we got hundreds of different answers for what you would do the same. But we found that a significant percentage of parents said to us, if I could go back, I would celebrate the birth of my child. What I missed was this, like, you have a baby because all this other stuff was thrown in. And so Buddy Baskets was born out of that concept. And I cannot take credit. We cannot take credit for the naturally occurring chromosomal arrangement. We stole it. I don't remember where, I think it was Down Syndrome International or NDSS saw it somewhere and I love it. Whoever did that, they need to get all of the credit and they should do a lot of the wording for a lot of the things that we do in this world, honestly. Well, it's the first time I've seen it and I've seen a lot of different things. So yeah, I think that that's my new verbiage on everything that I see because it is, you know, we just jumped right in. I know Paul has a limited amount of time. It's all right. It's better when Michelle's talking anyway. So. <laughs> so, But everything that you've said, yes and yes, I want that so much for our community because I see the impact that diagnosis and those words, and I wish everybody had a pediatrician like yours. Our pediatrician was just as positive, but I, I feel like that's what's missing. I yeah, feel even like- with positive people around you, even a few- you still feel like when we've said this before, you feel robbed of the celebration. Yes. Yeah. I think the key words were that you are fully equipped. I, I always look on the message boards and people, they, they're so worried uh, as soon as they get a diagnosis, more worried than just the, the normal worries that you have, just that you're, ha that you're bringing a human into the world and what that entails. You know, and the, and I, so I think that that's the weight of all this um, preconceived and the misperceptions that exist that we're really working to, to change. Easiest baby on the planet, ours was. Never, ever, ever cried, never cried. Is not crying in the photo immediately after birth when he's being weighed. And I think the first time he cried, like cried, minus the foot prick for the karyotype test, um, never cried in the NICU. He had nurses lined up to request for their, their shifts. And in fact, he ended up with two. One was day shift, one was night shift. So for the seven days he was there, he had the same two nurses the entire time. They are part of our family now. They're awesome humans, but easiest baby ever. So when my friends have kids and they're like, oh, what do you do when I'm like, I don't know, Isaiah never cried, never complained. 
is a super high pain tolerance. I don't really know what to tell you. It's dangerous. You know, I cut off the top of his finger once on accident with a leaf blower right down to the bone. And he sang Taylor Swift all the way to the ER, all the way. <laughs> so I think there's so many gifts that come with our kids. And I think the world is turning and I think being part of the solution is so important. And I think one of the challenges that we face as a community, and this is not always a popular opinion, and I sometimes stand on an island sharing it alone, is that extending grace to those who don't understand it or who say things we may have said prior to having Isaiah or our friends may say or aren't aware that they shouldn't, is there are two places that I have found as a mom really challenge all the Jesus in me. But at the end of the day, when I sit on the side of faith, I find that we are so much more able to grow with the people that don't understand and affect large change than we are if we judge and condemn and get angry. And the challenge with that is we're teaching nobody anything. All we're teaching them is that we are angry as, and it doesn't mean we're not. Sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I'm super angry. I remember Somebody sent me several years ago a post from a, a woman online who was attacking our children and, and the things that she suggested that we should do with our children was, it was absolutely terrible. Probably the worst I had ever seen. And I read it and I was really mad. And then I sat on my response for a little while and there are moms that have younger kiddos than ours here who were asking me to reply and asking me to get involved and will you participate and people know your husband. So if you, if you, post this out there, people will see it if Paul posts it or if Webb posts it. And instead I ended up sending her a direct message and apologizing to her for whoever did whatever they did to her. This, these are not thoughts that you have on your own. They come from somewhere. And if no one is willing to have the hard conversation with you about why our children should not be eliminated from society the way that she desired to do so, then we never make growth. People who think that are just sitting out there. She never replied and that's okay with me. I felt super comfortable. I invited her to reach out to me directly. And if she could ensure me that Isaiah would be safe in a conversation that I would allow her to have a chat with him and with me collectively together online, whatever. And she never responded and that's okay. But we sit in an interesting place as parents of kids with Down syndrome in that we can affect change on a global scale. If you look at what Biddy and Bose have done and all of the incredible businesses that are owned by now families of children with Down syndrome or adults with Down syndrome, we're making change, but we have to do it in a way where we are able to extend grace to those who don't know any better because we have all been there at some point in some category where we have not known any better. And if no one gently and gracefully corrects us, then we sit exactly where we have always been and we are not getting better. I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's so important in every aspect of our life, if we're talking any subject, to find someone who disagrees with you and even more than disagrees with you, and to come back in an angry way, saying angry words, maybe saying how wrong you are and how stupid you are for your, your ideas, a wall just gets built right there and nobody listens to each other then. So can it be hard to do that sometimes? Yeah, especially when some really harsh stuff that you see, but it's the goal. And the reason why we should be motivated to do that is because that's how the progress happens to be truthful. I love that it makes it sound so easy. <laughs> it's a piece of cake. It was year. I mean, we went mm. through all the phases. I've talked before about, I remember walking in and I think Liam was in first grade and I don't know what your uh, situation has been with IEPs and education, but you know, fought all the way. Our child doesn't deserve to be educated. Put him in a special day class. He's never going to learn. He's never going to read. He's not going to do this. He doesn't belong with all the kids. We're still fighting. Us too. We should talk. And I just realized this with Stephen the other day, we just had this conversation conversation. When parents saw Liam in their classroom, they literally looked around like, what class are we in? Yeah, wait, is this, is this the right, the right class, class? For my kid? And that comes from our generation grew up where everybody who was different had a special day class. It was very segregated. There was no or inclusion. Or a different school. Or a different school. Or that bus, which I was talking to him about. I was telling our daughter because there was a bus in front of us. And we talked about because we have very serious conversations on the way to school. Yeah, the school bus that was half that the length of a regular school bus. The smaller school bus. Right? One 
it showed you that there was segregation and all these kids were being bussed off. That should have been our concern, not the jokes that ensued from the special short bus. And because of those jokes, it planted seeds in, in, in that complete generation that were not seeds of inclusion, that put a mindset on what different learning meant. And if those people in quotes were in your class, what that meant. So it just, it just sowed those seeds of a non-inclusive environment and inequality in education so hard that they're planted and people don't even know they're part of their mindset. So when they showed up and Liam was in their classroom, we had people ask us to create a book explaining what Down syndrome was. And I was just like, are you, first of all, if you know anything about having children, where am I going to get that spare time? And don't you think I have other things? If I happen to have that much time to write this book that you can Google? Like, don't you think I'm going to send it on like reading with my child? I was like on Shutterfly too. And those little books those are, are and they're so expensive. <laughs> and there's like 36 because the classroom's overcrowded. So there's, I've got to make 36 books. I, I actually said, I'll make a book if you make a book. I, and that woman never talked to me again. Sounds about right. <laughs> and you're right. I was viewed as the angry mom, which I'll be honest with you, if any of those parents of neurotypical children had been approached in the slightest way that they had approached me, they would have blown their tops. They would have like, they would have gone to the principal and said, this mom said this to me, but it was okay for all of them to say it to me. The teacher came up and said, they'd like you to make a book and they want me to, they want to know what I should say about Down syndrome. And I just found that very odd because none of them went to me to ask me um, how they should teach their children manners or what their children should eat for lunch and all these other things that are natural parts of parenting. The parents had questions. The kids didn't have questions. Kids hadn't. It's it's kindergarten. Kids don't care. They're like, Liam, we love you. Yeah. But I remember that year walking onto campus and going, I'm just done being angry. Yeah. I'm, I'm done. I, I don't like how it feels in me. We're not making any progress. You know, uh, honestly, the anger is completely justified. We're not saying that. Like, I get, like nobody should say these things. Feel your feelings. Ever. Yeah, feel your feelings. Where you say feel your feelings. It's, you're absolutely, it's completely justified. But the truth is that these seeds are planted in people so deep they don't know they exist. They don't know they're non-inclusive. They don't know they're prejudiced and they're filled with misconceptions. They don't know it. And you're absolutely right. The only way is to just educate from a loving place. That's really the, that's really the only. And it's not easy. No, it's not. I'm not suggesting for one second that it's easy. It's not easy for him. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for any of us. And it's, it really is an island because our friends love us. I know they do, but they have absolutely no idea what it's like to sit in an IEP meeting with your three-year-old and have him in the room with a team of people who've been with him at school for eight weeks. And, you know, everybody goes around and says their piece at the beginning. And we brought our private therapy team with us. And I'm not sure our speech therapist's leg will ever be the same because she was sitting on my right And we got around the room to the therapy team that was working with Isaiah at that time. They'd been with him for eight weeks. This lovely, sweet young woman said, well, we're not really doing speech therapy with Isaiah because he's not able to produce any audible sounds. And in the back of the room, I grabbed Melanie's leg like this from the back of the room where Isaiah was right behind us playing. Mel turned around and she said, Isaiah, what color is that? Blue. Isaiah, how many blocks do you have? One, two, three. And the eyes in the room. And I think that was the day Paul and I realized that was one of our first IEP meetings. We've only done two or three because we have ended up on, we have left public school. Um, Here in Florida, particularly in this county, we have found that they are not equipped and that there is one priority. And the priority is to minimize expenses, to protect the number one, this is not going to be popular at all. I might get kicked out of this county to protect the number one school rating of the public school system with which we live in. And the way that you do that is to ensure that only kids who can score the highest possible test scores on standardized testing are the ones who are taking said standardized tests. And since while we do have a governor right now who is working to eliminate some of the standardized testing, The problem is the fastest way to do that is to move the kids who will not meet the standard for the standardized tests into a self-contained classroom, which 
Tim Vajegas, who is fantastic, would call segregated because that's what it is. It's not self-contained. It's segregated. I think that's the words. And you don't stand alone. <laughs> and you can come. You can come here. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> Our islands are united. Yes, I think parents of kiddos with Down syndrome who are advocating share islands. And then I think those of us who who have neurotypical kids and only neurotypical kids desire to relate. I know our friends desire to relate to it, but until you have walked into an IEP meeting and until you have been the mom who is then encouraging a friend of yours who has a three-year-old, I had this conversation six months ago with a friend of ours. And I said to her, listen to me, somebody told me this too, but in the state of Florida, what you need to do is you need to pray that she has the very worst showing of academic intelligence, social intelligence, every skill set you are desiring for her to get the lowest score possible because then her matrix score number is higher. The higher her matrix score number, the more money you will get to pull her from the public school system that's failing her. That's what we do is we have to prove our kids are inept in order for us to put them in a system that can support their needs. And that is so backwards. I can't even... It's so brutal. And what does that do to you? Like, and broke us. We left that IEP meeting bawling. That was a different meeting. That was with the county. That was not with the school system. We walked out of that IEP meeting, the assessment that was done with a complete stranger in a room that was not a classroom. It was an office that had a couple bookcases with some kids' books in it. We sat in the waiting room while they assessed our three year old. And when we walked out, after sitting down and letting this team of six or seven people who had never met Isaiah before tell us how terribly he had scored on all of these tests and all of their assessments. We walked out and stood in that parking lot and bawled at the car, bawled. Like they don't know our kid. They, they, first of all, in that environment, there's not a single kid who would be successful. (laughs) Isaiah was the most likely to be successful because he doesn't care about strangers. So he was like, bye, I'm going to go with this strange lady. See you later. But no kids can be successful in an environment like that, except that's what we expect of our kids. And we assess them based on that. At the time, heartbreaking. In hindsight, super thankful for the experience because what it did was set this matrix score that will now follow him unless we request it to be redone. So here's how backwards this system is. His matrix score at eight, meaning the needs that he has is exactly the same as it was at three because apparently he's not evolved at all. But the benefit to that is the number that is assigned to him for scholarship dollars that we can utilize for anything as long as we do not enroll him back in the public school system remains the exact same dollar amount as long as we don't request that they reassess him to see his growth. So we have him in this little box so that we can keep his scholarship dollars to help cover the cost of his therapies and his and his homeschool co-op and his extracurriculars and his gymnastics and his hip hop and his dance classes and his all of the things that he does. And I don't even begin to know how to fix the system. We have met with the county. I think they were afraid again that Paul had a platform that made them nervous. They took the meeting with me and I went in with binders and books. And I remember distinctly a lovely gentleman who said to me, I'm not sure what you think the problem is with the system. My daughter was in a blended ESE classroom for kids ages three and five when she was in school. And I I think the system's working. I said, how old's your daughter? And he said, 19, there you go. (laughs) So in 16 years, we have not evolved is what you're saying. And you think that it's an effective system. And subsequently the entire ESE program for ages three through five in our county was pulled except for two schools. So 800 kids were affected. And what made me sad about that is these 800 kids now had to find a place to go. What made me happy about it is this failing system was no longer available for parents, but that should not be the choice. We should not be forced to choose between the least bad of our options. And that's, I think what Paul and I have struggled with the most academically for Isaiah is that I felt where I was where you were, Lori, I was very angry. I was depressed. I wasn't able to sleep. I was exhausted. I was a terrible wife. I was a terrible follower of Jesus. I was a terrible mother. I couldn't be present because I was so busy fighting 
and so tired from fighting. But what Paul and I would talk about regularly was, okay, here are our options. We can send them in public school and here's all the bad things about that. Or we could send him to this private school and here's all the bad things about that. Or we can move him to this place and here all, he won't be with his friends and he won't know anybody and here. All. We were choosing from the best of the worst, always. And this year we have found he is in an environment where he is thriving. And it's the first time that's happened. It doesn't mean it doesn't have challenges, but it's different. This does not feel like the best of the worst anymore. We are collaborating with a homeschool co-op, a Christian co-op, and the founder of that co-op and I sat down and I said to her, if this is gonna work, we need to have open communication on both sides. You can't be afraid to ask me stuff. And you have to know that when he needs to be disciplined, I'm there. We want to participate in making this the best environment, not only for Isaiah, but for the kids in his class who are going to achieve far greater things academically, socially, and the remainder of their life because you took the step to intentionally include this little boy. And that's been a process of growth. And she's been a tremendous gift. And Renee Woods, I love you. She called me Friday and she said, hey, I don't know how to ask this. And I said, I'm ready, hit me. How do we give Isaiah enough freedom so that he can be bad and get in trouble like a regular kid? I think she said neurotypical kid. And I said... I love the question because we provide support for some of the academic areas of the day. And we have ABA there working on some life skills and things with Isaiah. And we are happy to pay for and provide therapy and support in the room to help get the other kids engaged in ways where their parents may not know how to or have the skill set. And she said, I feel like he doesn't get the freedom to be a little boy in trouble because there's always somebody watching him. And I feel like when there's constantly an adult with him, I feel like the other kids aren't as likely to approach him. She's like, Michelle, he's funny. Like he's funny. And I want him to make the fart sounds with his arm, but <laughs> I want to know how to rein him back in. And what she asked me for was an arsenal. Can you provide me an arsenal of the tips and tricks that you use to bring him back. She's like, I want to set him up to get in trouble. And then when I do that, I want to be able to bring him back. And I was like, I love this. I said, here are my, first, my top four tricks. We talked through it. I gave her a little cheat sheet. And this week he had an hour and a half with no other adult besides Renee, who is the co-founder of the school. And she called me crying yesterday afternoon. And she's like, it was so great. <laughs> that is the goal that we have had for a very long time. Paul and I have been working with our church and with a group of friends here and to try to create an inclusive environment, a true inclusion environment here. And we're not there yet. And COVID didn't help us. But what God provided for us in the meantime was Renee Woods and this incredible co-op and an opportunity for Isaiah at least three days a week to be in a place where Renee believes truly and wholeheartedly at her core that Isaiah should be included just like every other child in that environment. And she recognizes there are different needs for him and she wants the tools instead of saying, you know, we'll just keep somebody on top of them and make sure we're good. She wants the tools to give him the freedom to be a first grader. That's what we need. And how do we get there? I don't know. <laughs> I, it's a work in progress. I think we're, we as a family are making small steps. It's been awesome to see Isaiah's growth, but there is a part of me that is still ticked off that I have, that we are in a situation where we have to make this choice where I can't just send him to the school that Paul could hit a driver and a ball would land in the school parking lot from our home and he isn't going there. And that's a shame. It's unlawful. Correct. Not just a shame. It's unlawful. Like at some point you fight and you fight and I in no means am saying to not advocate and to not continue to strive to make the changes. But at some point there's not the acceptance as in the relinquishing to it, but the acceptance of this is how it is. 
I got to see it for what it is. And now, and I think that you make changes better in that environment. We had in our mind that we were going to change our homeschool. Oh, we, we left. Could, but we left that school. We're not as good with the driver, so, but it's about, <laughs> it's like a no, it's mile. No, a, it's, a, it's a couple par fives. But uh, <laughs> uh, we had to relinquish that and say, where can we make our changes? And and to, to speak on real change too is all these kids in Liam's class uh, that he's being included with, like we've said before, are, are going to grow up different than we did. Those seeds that were planted in our generation and generations past aren't going to be planted in those kids, right? And the kids in your son's class are going to grow up and maybe be a teacher and know how to teach and, and include and, and include in, and to teach in for the everyone. Workforce. Like I don't think just, and it, and it does really go on. People look at our children, like the, the woman who'd never met him that sat in on this last IEP and said, wait a second, he has Down syndrome, so why are we continuing to keep him on curriculum? But, but they, in California, there's a big push to what they call an alternate curriculum. So they just want to get you off the curriculum. Probably so they won't. Cra- it's a whole tests, thing about we right? don't have to graduate. They're not going to affect the total scores on the standardized testing. And, and now we can build this curriculum for your child, going off of what your child says. And I and and I they get told it. us we're, we'll just we'll just use Liam's cues as to what he wants to learn. And I was like, what? Not in first grade. Please don't do you that. Imagine if they would have done that to us. Oh my gosh. Oh, my goodness. But could that work as a model to kind of figure out things later? Maybe. I, mean, I don't want to designate in first grade that my child's not going to have. Well, an because I for think. Well, we know that it's not like, going to be like we're just going to look at his strength. Like the school that he's at now is an inclusive environment, and the first IEP we had with them, they riddled off all of his strengths. Yeah, it was like and then on, about his on his challenges, they were like, "And this is how we're going to support him." We cried; it was so embarrassing. Oh yeah, we were. We, <laughs> it's yeah. so embarrassing. We were. But I wanted to know because you said she asked for some of your tricks. Tell me what your tricks are to pull him back. We have a couple. Isaiah loves to be the teacher, so first of all, as much as possible, we try to preempt everything. So keeping him on a schedule, using a timer. Um, he's really good at yelling at our Alexa that he needs to have a timer set for however long. So we have a lot of preemptive tricks. These were kind of let's let him go. And then how do I reel him back once I let him go tricks? A lot, it's just me arm up in the air and whatever he's doing, he's interrupted and he's like, yes, mommy. And I'm like, hey, have you seen Isaiah? I'm looking for a kid named Isaiah. And he's like, oh, that's me. I'm like, oh, whew. Can you tell him I need, and I'll rattle off two completely unimportant things. And then whatever it was that I knew I was not going to be able to get him to do will be the third or the fourth thing. The other very successful trick for that exact same concept is, um, if you can hear me make a funny face, Isaiah, if you can hear me jump up and down three times, Isaiah, if you can hear me take your dinner plate and put the garbage in the trash and put your plate in the dishwasher. And if you make it for us, if we make the first two completely unrelated two or three to what I need him to do that he does not want to do because he does not want to stop playing his game or stop jumping on the trampoline or stop chasing the dog or whatever that is, whatever activity he does, he is not ready to transition from. Those are the two that work best for mom. For dad, there's a different one. Yeah. What Michelle just said, schedule timer, like teacher boss mode, you know, make it a game. It's obviously not more difficult to get through to Isaiah. It's just different. Just like if you had neurotypical children, 10 of them, it would be different to communicate with all of them, how they're going to get it. Well, that's the way Isaiah is. Um, Mine is I race him. We just race at everything. Oh, daddy's going to beat you. Oh, no, you're not. And he'll just stop doing whatever he is. So, but like, you have to figure that out about your kid. It didn't work with my daughter. Obviously that would have meant nothing. She goes, okay, go. She doesn't care. But like Isaiah does. And so I think, you know, anytime, even some of my friends, you know, are always like, you know, Paul, we're sorry. We just know how, you know, how much busier you guys are, you know, with Isaiah. I'm like, no, we're really not. It's just different. Um, You know, as you're going to do certain maybe sport activities or team games, we're going to therapies and doing things maybe in, in a different way. And we still find time for a lot of play and a lot of golf and working out and stretching with mommy and daddy. But it's just different. That's all. And that's what we're trying to say. Hey, it's, it's not hard or difficult. It's just different. And we all have different challenges. You two have different challenges. Michelle and I have different challenges. And so Isaiah is just going to have a little bit different challenges. And I, 
I try to put it to golf as often as possible. I've worked for four different guys on the PGA Tour. All have been very successful. And all of them were different. And so I had to kind of approach them all very differently. I had to speak to them all very differently. In the heat of battle coming down the stretch, I had to say four different things to all four players, knowing who they are and learning them. I mean, it's really not that different, even in marriage, how you start to learn how to communicate well with each other. Even after, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you still have to learn how to communicate with one another because it's easy to communicate the way we want to. How can you communicate the way they want to? And, you know, Isaiah's a stubborn little eight-year-old boy, and that's a good thing. We want that. Um, and just learning how to communicate with him, um, that's best for him is the hard part, but it's a fun part. And we're going to try to teach other people how to do it as well. And you can have a dance party to just about anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so all else fails, dance party. Yeah. Which is also one of the first things to go in consequences for him. Ah. It's so funny as a parent. I think this is true for all parents. When your kids start to pair it back to you, you're like, oh yeah, where did he learn? Oh me, he learned that from me. So <laughs> I have lost lots of dance parties. I've lost iPad time. I've lost, <laughs> I have lost going sleepy tired with mommy. I'm like, you can't take it away from me. I am mommy. And he's like, nope, lost sleepy tired with mommy. I'm like, all right, buddy. <laughs> but um so you know what your consequences are when you get them back um and so we we get those a lot but dance party for sure and giving tips to renee yesterday just i walked into school with a little index card and i was like the detail in the text but these are just like trigger words for you so if you need to pull it out and take a look if you see that you're losing him or you know that what you're about to ask him to do he is not going to like and you do not have time to say okay in five minutes we're gonna to go to the playground and first we're gonna clean up our lunch and then we're gonna put our lunch in our backpack and then we're gonna fill up our water and then we're going to the playground. If you don't have time for that, then these are the ways that you can get him to comply without it turning into an argument because every kid is not afraid to put dig their heels in if it's important. And things that are important to Isaiah are just different than they are for other kids. So pretty frequently those work. Rarely they do not work. I can't think of a scenario in the last several months where one of those tricks has not been the thing where we are able to get him. Chasing daddy is by far the most fun. And so they race to everything. Every, every toothbrushing session is a race. Every shower is a race. Getting PJs on is a race. Um, so what I said to Renee was, if it's safe at school and you can challenge him to a race, he is going to take off right away. So you just have to pick your <laughs> situations because he's gone. The second you say it, he's gone. <laughs> it's so funny. We, we do that first and then yeah, this first, and then, then this and that. Yeah. He loves to count on his fingers. He's like, no, 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 no. And it's great because we did it initially to work on counting first, second, third, fourth. And now it's a really good system for him to just keep track of things in order. Because I remember years ago, back in the day where we're trying to follow novel two-step directions, things that other parents never have to think about. <laughs> but we're working on Isaiah following two novel directions without reminders. And I mean, four years ago, I don't know, but counting them out for him. And he loves, he's like, okay, brush teeth, check. Put on PJs, check. Go race daddy. No, not yet. One minute, one minute. So he, and he checks them. If they're written down, he checks them off. If they're on his fingers, he checks them pretty violently, checks them off. But they are successful tools for our child. That's going to change at some point. I said to Renee yesterday, I'm like, these are going to work until they don't. And when they don't, we'll find new ones. That's what we pay a really good ABA team for. Um, and then I asked his support people, I sent the same list and I'm like, do you have other things? And Kate, who's one of his tutors who came from the public school system is a teacher up North. She got to Florida, made it one day and handed her computer back and said, you don't need, I'm, I'm out. This is not, can't do it. Um, never made it to the first day of school. She was like two weeks before school started. And she's like, yeah, no, bye, not happening. Um, so she is an educator and up north where, where I'm from, so Kate is, was also a teacher in Vermont. It is an inclusion environment. There is no alternative. There are private schools, but for the private schools in Vermont aren't for kids who learn differently. They're for families who don't want their kid in, in public school and are willing to drop 30, 40, $50,000 for a very specific education 
and it's a choice. <laughs> it is not an alternative for kids with some identified need that affects their ability to learn academically on pace or whatever is traditional, which is crazy because that's not true for any kid. But Kate got here and she's like, there's no kids in my class. Like, I don't know what to do with this group. She was teaching health, I think. So she's great. So I texted her yesterday. I'm like, hey, here's the list I gave to Renee. If you have others that work for you. And she sent me back two or three of her favorites. And I was like, love it. Give it to Renee before you leave today. Um, he doesn't want to come off the playground, but who does? Who does? Who wants to go inside and read stepping stones when you can be climbing on the playground? And if you're really smart, you climb to the top of the tower you're not supposed to be on top of that they put on the playground, but then don't let you climb to the top of for safety reasons, but it's there. Up he goes where nobody can reach him. I wouldn't want to come down either. It's really cool up there. <laughs> you can hang, he can do pull-ups. It's fantastic. I wouldn't want to leave there either. Well, like you said, every kid's going to put his heels in, you know, or, or her heels in yep. and test boundaries and stuff like that. Uh, sometimes we feel, and it's happened in the past, that Liam's pretty good, and this might be just how society sees Liam, uh, pretty good at getting his way a lot of times. Mm. A lot of times, yep. especially people that aren't involved you know, in the house or that we've instructed on how to instruct him and educate him. So he gets away with a lot. And they're, they're willing to let him get away with it. They're not willing to educate him. And it teaches him That's the frustration. things that we have to go back and, and, and undo. Him and, and you were talking about these things that he does. It's just because he's a boy. He's a kid. That's it. And Isn't it wonderful he it. can just be a boy? Yeah. And that's what he should be allowed to be. And the fact that you have to, I mean, I love that your co-founder said, how can we allow him to just be a boy? But it's so unnerving to me, the, these uh, parameters that they put, it's like such tight parameters on our child, setting them up to fail, to be judged, to be ridiculed, but then the denial of an education and equality. Honestly, it's it's abusive to parents. You said you have to put your child in a box and you have to present your child because that serves them because that propagates their misperceptions and their stereotypes. But you have to do that. What that does to you on the inside, because every part of your being knows that it's not true. Correct. My son spends his life overcoming and rising to the occasion and proving, try to say show, not prove, because he doesn't have to prove who he is, showing that that. Everything that was said about him, that list that was given about him, those things that the doctor said about him were totally wrong. I don't want to have to prove what it kills my soul. It hurts me so bad. And it shouldn't be like that. I do believe like in anything in life, the tides are a turning. Yes. And if you start to look around when you have an adult with Down syndrome speaking to Congress and mm -hmm. doing it boldly and changing their views and perceptions of what is possible and how deep that intellect is and how deep that passion is. And then you take a look at a friend of ours, Amy Bakersteady, who is on a scholarship to play NCAA college golf. And you looked at, she got put in a pro-am to play one hole with Gary Woodland and she got up and down out of the bunker. And, you know, he asked, you want help? And she goes, no, I got this. She gets it up and down for par and it wrecks his life, changes his life. Then he wins the U.S. Open and now their relationship is everywhere. She's reached in the tens of millions and you go everywhere now and you get on the internet and you start typing in all these celebrations on football fields for our young adults with Down syndrome. You go look at basketball courts, making a three-pointer again. And I think what's happening now is you're seeing it go from a bullying situation that we used to experience growing up. And a lot of that, to be honest, we just came out of miseducation. I don't think people were, were really angry and mean in their heart. They just were miseducated. There's a great video of a dad one time that failed to step up to the plate in a grocery store. And he pens this self-made video um, on his way home and he's crying because he missed the opportunity to educate a young man, and he'll never miss it again, but his video now has helped me not miss the opportunity again. If someone says something in line like, oh, you know, what's wrong with your child? Well, I'm not going to get angry anymore. I'm going to say, hey, what a great question. Let me help you understand. There's nothing wrong with my boy. He's just got a little bit different challenges than you have. What have been some of your challenges? And you flip the script. And, you know, are you good in school? Are you good at sports? Ah, see, you, you don't have it all down. He's got different challenges. And you start to change that perspective. I really think the tides are, are, are turning. I think as long as we can continue to lovingly educate people, 
I think that it's going to continue to to spread as we do that. I'm fortunate on the PGA Tour that, you know, when I Isaiah was born, I missed about a month of work. And when I came back out, I mean, there there were at least 100 different players and caddies and tournament staff that had reached out and asked about him. And so he's grown up in a big family where he is, as you had said, he's special. He's different and he knows it and he is going to push <laughs> the boundaries with everything he has. As you would, Stephen, as I would, as Lori would, as Michelle would, we would all do these things that because he knows he's a little different, a little special, he's going to take advantage of that. We're all different. We're all special. We just have to find out our niche. And I really think our kiddos have a great niche of being able to raise the temperature of joy no matter where they are and no matter what's coming at them. And that's what we have to try to flower and water and see that bloom as we go forward. And I'm going to let Michelle take over. I've only got three more minutes, but I'm going to let Michelle take over in a little bit. I just want to say my little piece. Yes. And that is, I think, so Jeff Bezos, Amazon, when they first started off, everybody asked him, how did you create this monster, the largest company in the world and all this? And he goes, it was simple. We had one mantra and the mantra was step-by-step. Webb, uh, when he ended up winning the Players' Championship, Phoenix the next year and Hilton had the next year, he had something stamped on his wedges, step-by-step. And I think the way we start to change education is we don't run from the system. What we do is, Michelle, I've been working for five years trying to start a school. And I still think it's going to happen. Um, it's just that there are a lot of things go there. But, you know, if we're able to get this done or help financially someone get this done, that's one. That, that's a step. We're able to start a school. We're able to put in the parameters that we want to make it an inclusive environment that, number one, helps teach our little kiddos, but also helps teach the other kiddos as well because they both need each other. The neurotypical kids need to spend time with our awesome kiddos and our kiddos need to spend time with those neurotypical children. They need to be together because both sides win when that happens. So my last part is I think what we have to do is guys like don't get too overwhelmed, but if we can, if we can all do our part to just help build schools that look differently they will explode. People will see them. The neurotypical parents will see, oh, wow, we're getting so much out of this. We're learning so much from Liam and Isaiah and all. Oh, and then our times we're like, oh, this is precious. Look at how much we're learning from this neurotypical peers that that is wonderful. They could play together and do all these things and learn how to be boys. And I think step by step, don't be too overwhelmed by how bad it is maybe, but let's say, okay, let's, let's make a step and let's see if we can go attack this little area as we're going forward. I think that's the way we do it is one step at a time. Well said, Paul. Thank you. Yep. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Yep. I'm going to leave. All right. Y'all <laughs> keep kicking it. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Um, I think there's two things. It is not lost on us that we have the financial resources. We have internet. We have access. We have the freedom to make choices financially for Isaiah that a ton of families of, who have kids with Down syndrome do not have access to or the ability to. And Paul lives in a very unique space of, you know, the Andy Buckley world. The reality is we live in a different place. We live amidst some of the greatest professional athletes that have ever walked the planet. And Isaiah is in that little group we have to be aware that that is very unique and our access is very, very different. If we need something, we have a Rolodex that runs incredibly deep that I could pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, I can't find, or do you know, or could you recommend? And as we have met a ton of Buddy Baskets families here, it is not lost on me that that is not available to every family. And the truth is it should be available to all families, but the reality is that is not the America that we live in. And this is a struggle for us with access, basically unlimited access. I don't care how much it costs. If it's going to make life better for Isaiah, we are going to do absolutely every single thing we possibly can to make that feasible for him and for our family. But that is a very small percentage of the American family. And that is that little thing eats at me. It's what drives a lot of the work that we do for the charitable foundation. It's Paul will tell you the thing that keeps me awake at night a lot during the year is our all-star kids clinic that we limit it to 25 kids uh, because we want the kids to be all-stars. And the way that works is a, is a small number of kids with a massive group of like cheerleaders with them. So it'll be like one kid 
four adults that are just literally catering to their every single need at our all-star kids clinic. And it could be a professional athlete. It could be Andy Buckley. It could be a neighbor down the street. It doesn't matter. And the kids don't care. They don't care. And there are celebrities every single place that you turn. You know who cares about the celebrities? The parents. We had to rope off like, no, you can't chase Webb and Bubba Watson down for photos right now because they're here for your kids. That's funny. And that is where we live. But we also have to be aware and cognizant of the fact that all of these things that we're talking about that are difficult for us, for your family, for our family, they are difficult with access. I can't even process the loneliness that must come with the knowledge that your child is not being treated equitably or fairly or legally and not having the ability to affect change for your own child, let alone locally, globally. Yeah, it, it is that thing. That, that's like a little hole in my heart that Jesus has been working on. And, and it starts with the one academy that we've been working on for several years and we'll continue to work on it. Um, it is a, it's an incredibly special world that we live in. And I am reminded pretty regularly that we have access. I think there's so many things here because we've learned that anger doesn't, doesn't help anyone. It doesn't, we, that the anger is completely validated and, and, but it doesn't, doesn't help us. It doesn't help us teach. We've learned that. It's a great motivator. It's a great motivator. Yes. Because I don't think you could see the reality and not be angry, but I think that is what is so hard about this journey is it's staying in that mindset of step-by-step and making the change. And then also facing the reality of we cry at our IEPs and the parents who don't have that, that access, that ability, all of those things. And I, I think that's what makes it such a complicated uh, subject. And sometimes, and I love talking to people who are very optimistic because I can be profoundly optimistic, but it shines a light on, oh, I'll be a little pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the part of the, what makes this journey so hard is that how you want it to be is not how it is. How you want to feel is a lot of work to, to get there. And if you have more than one child and one is neurotypical, you see the, the contrast between how the two of them are treated. And just even talking about letting your son be a boy, letting him do the other things. Like they're, he, they're held to different accountabilities to where if he demonstrates the same behavior as his neurotypical counterpart, there's going to be like a, a note in his IEP and there's going to be a system set up to, to almost squash that, right? I don't know that it's just, it's just big. It is, it's big and it's heavy. And I think one of the things that I've worked through, we've got, I've got an awesome therapist who's just, she's a phenomenal human being. And we talk about that fear and anger, those things, those emotions that trigger a response they're a great motivator, but they are not a place to live. These are natural responses, but they're natural responses that are there to spark an action. So to do something, to take the next step, to do the next thing, but not to sit in it. And I think for so many years, I sat in anger simultaneously trying to take next steps, but my, my entire psyche, my soul, my heart was so weighted with the tasks, it felt, I'm like, there is no light. This is the rest of our lives. Like the, he has to fight for the rest of his life. And it's so unfair. So I, I feel everything you're saying. And then I think about the future. And this is what Paul was talking about. So Amy Bockersteady is the young lady that was at the Phoenix Open. She and her family live in Arizona. And she was part of a Special Olympics program that invited some athletes out to the Phoenix Open. It's a tournament that Webb has won. We are close with the, with the crew that operates that event. The PGA Tour is very small. We are, of course, friendly with Gary Woodland and Matt Kuchar, who were all out there that day in the group where she participated. Hardest hole on the course, the 16th hole. It's a mess. And she did. Paul's right. She got up and down from the bunker. Gary did what almost everybody does and just, do you need some help? She's like, I got this. Barry's the par putt. She's a phenomenal human. She was playing in a college event here in Florida. 
So I drove down and I had the opportunity to walk with their athletic director. And she said, Hey, can I tell you a, a story? And I said, yeah. She said, so we have some freshmen on the team, some new young ladies on the team this year. And she said, we were standing in front of the bus and one of the, you know, we're, I think she said they were like six weeks into the season or something. And she said, I went up to, her name was Sarah on the team. She said, I went up to Sarah and I said to her, how are you doing? Do you feel like you're fitting in? Do you feel like you're, how are we doing? She said, I do this with, with all of our players, but it's the most unique, important answer I have ever been given. She said, coach, it is impossible to not feel included with Amy on the team. She includes everybody. So the question was, how are you doing? Do you feel included? You're new to the team. How are the girls treating you? And her answer was, it would be impossible not to feel included because Amy loves everybody so, so much that we all feel included. And I thought that's the thing that we're fighting for, that the anger is for, and it exists. And there are people out there that want to be part of that. They want to be part of the change. And this incredible community college that has put her on a scholarship, the very first college athlete ever with Down syndrome on scholarship, athletic scholarship. It's incredible. And those things are happening. And we are close with Chris and, and Iron Man is like, ah, I have my 1% more tank top. And when I work out in it, I'm like, I'm never doing an Iron Man. It's never, <laughs> ever happening. It's phenomenal. Those are the things that the anger is meant for. It's so that we can learn from the people who've done it before us it's so that we can continue to grow. It's to fuel change. It's to be part of the solution. And if I continue to use fear and anger and frustration and exhaustion, so, so much exhaustion in parenting, any kind of parenting, as motivators, as opposed to a place to live, then there's a way to utilize those in a healthy way that God's given to us so that we can do something about it. Because we can't sit back and complain about it if we aren't willing to be part of the solution. I can complain, but if I'm not willing to be part of the solution, we're doing absolutely nothing to affect change on a larger scale. And if not us, then who? It's got to be somebody. The One Academy is based off a conversation that a dad of a young man with Down syndrome had with Paul in Boston years ago. He asked Paul a bunch of questions. And when he was done, Paul's like, I have questions. Your son is incredibly well-spoken. He is so articulate. What did you find that was successful? And he said, live in Manhattan. And he said, we fought the school system, fought it and fought it and fought it. And the only solution was to start a school of our own. And that's what we've done because what we were looking for didn't exist. So we had to create it. And they have a very successful school in Manhattan called the ideal school. And Paul came, I will never forget. He came, this was probably five or six, five years ago. He's like, we have to start a school. And I went, <laughs> okay. And about three years later, we just kind of jotted down this vision and a mission statement and all of these things. And now we just need so many smarter people than us to take it to the next level and finding a space is the first thing. So um, we're not gonna get there in our generation. We're not gonna get there in Liam's generation or Isaiah's generation but we are going to make steps for their generation and for their kids and for their grandkids. And man, I hope I'm here to see it. I mean, that's the stuff that keeps us going. Yeah. I just think it's the stuff that the other side doesn't get yet. They just don't know yet. Um, when you talk about taking it one step at a time, those are two great steps that we have. And that one is to be motivated by the anger, but then to just let it go and let it be your motivation, but don't let it sink you. And one new tip now, we're going to go into our IPs. We're going to assume competence, competence and intelligence. We're going to assume those things when we sit down with our team. That's what we're going to do, parents. You know what I thought I'd say to my IEP team? I assume you're competent. I assume you're intelligent. Let's pay Liam same courtesy. that same courtesy. Million percent. Yes. A lot of the things you say, like I'm thinking as you're saying them, so it yes. doesn't like <laughs> we finish each other's sandwiches, Michelle. Yes, we do. What a good movie. Don't marry that guy. Even if you finish <laughs> sandwiches, you do not want someone who takes your sandwich. Um, so let's 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 go in there with, you know, things that work to support our child. But also, you know, this is how we're going to allow 
my child to that same freedom to fail, that same freedom to have behaviors. Let kids experience him 100%. I mean, I, there's still so much more to talk about. We didn't even well, get we'll to it. We like, we'll have to come do this again. Part B. Yeah, we'll have to do part B. Where we talk about something other than education. But okay. I'm here for all of it. I don't even love podcasts. I decline them all the time. But with you guys, first of all, anybody who's friends with Andy Buckley, I'm all in. <laughs> He's so great. All in. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been our pleasure to be with you guys today. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and join.